Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, where the idea is I speak to bands and artists about how they've been able to survive doing what they do when we all know that it must be so hard making a living playing music. On today's episode, Ezra Furman, who in a few moments will announce her new album, All of Us Flames, coming out on the 26th of August. The first track from it, Forever in Sunset, will be played on Lauren Laverne's sixth music show this morning. It's very early 
here in London, which you might be able to tell by the sound of my croaks. Thank you so much for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. This is episode 146. I've had members of Bell and Sebastian, Teenage Fan Club, Poppy Ajuda, Mateel, Hot Water Music on recent episodes. So cheers for coming along with this. Introducing Ezra Furman. Go well. Cheers. The summer of the crash, the winter of survival mode. Well, at this point, I have a bit of a dream gig, which is I'm, I'm, I do music for this TV show. So I got a corporate gig. I got a job. Sex education. Sex education. Exactly right. The Netflix series Sex Education. And that like pays, you know, decently. I couldn't, I don't, it couldn't be my only source of income, but it like could, you know, it could almost be. Um, And doing what I'm doing, I'm, I'm raising a child and working on music all the time. I don't know. I just, I look back even to just before that to like 2018 and I'm like, how was I even living? But I also didn't have a kid until late 2018. So like, it's all like teetering along, just, just lucky enough to, to make it happen. Basically. I just, so much, so many people just must, I mean, this was already true forever that like, it's so financially difficult to be in a band. I got all these special little trickles down from my parents' money, you know, even though like my parents were never paying my rent. They were never, I was like, I don't, I don't take money from my parents, but like I did, like I got the first time I was, I formed a band. I just kind of borrowed my parents' minivan and then just permanently borrowed it and ran into the ground. And they were like happy, you know, they were like, ah, it's our old car. We got a new car. Like that kind of trickled down. That's the class privilege that like it's harder to trace and talk about really what i think about uh just listening to some episodes of your show and what i think about from my life is i'm thinking about my my early 20s when i really had formed a band and i was like somehow there's something here that's like that's right for me and somehow i gotta make this work college is over which by the way my parents paid for and we're able to and happy to pay for. But I did make this break where I was like, I won't take any money from my parents. And I stopped really telling them. And then I just like went, I just ran out of money very quickly. And then I stopped paying rent. I just started to be, you know, without my own place to stay, staying on, on couches and not really telling most people that that's what I was doing and that I didn't have anywhere to be. You're quite good at being the, the last person out. Right, yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, no. Um, uh, I will just be here for just a little bit longer, and then uh, you can go to work, and I'll, I'll just let myself out. And then I just, like, thank God I can stay here all day. Yeah. This is complicated time and like you know it's complicated because like i feel like sort of the character in um the pulp song um common people who who thinks poor is cool and what like i'm not quite there i don't think like i wasn't 
I wasn't like doing it as a tourist for the pleasure of like poverty tourism, but like watching roaches climb the wall. If you call your dad, you could, he could stop it all. That was, that was kind of me, you know, but it's complicated when you're like, you, you don't, you can't, you don't know if you can talk to your parents. You don't like, I don't know, in exile from my, from my parents and like feeling totally kind of alone in the world and misunderstood queer figuring it out. So I formed, we formed our band, my first band, Ezra Furman and the Harpoons, we formed in college. After college, I just, I was truly unmoored. I didn't know how to find a place to live. And I found one really last minute with all these people who were much older than me who I didn't know and didn't meet. And then one of them robbed me. And like from one of my actual housemates um, stole my checkbook and wrote a bunch of checks and stole my money. Wow. <laughs> and he also stole my um, my laptop and then gave it back. It was complicated. So I just um, moved out of there and then I didn't have any more money. So I just was on people's couches and trying to see how long they, you know, seeing how many hours you can sit at Dunkin' Donuts after having bought one egg and cheese croissant and like sit there and like try to write something all day and hopefully no one tells you to leave. And that was in Massachusetts still. Yes. In the Boston area. But I was like really a mess and I and I was working a part-time job at um at the movie theater in in that era. At my my uncle got me a job at a movie theater that he managed, I guess. And that was a horrible job. I was selling popcorn and and tearing ticket stubs and for whatever reason that 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 job was one where they would they had about um six minutes of of going through little snippets of pop songs and like doing ads that was always playing and it just in an endless cycle the same four like like fallout boy songs and stuff and sitting there eating free popcorn all day and reading Dostoevsky and just being like, and I was not a, I was not in a stable place or truly not. I feel like it's sort of trodden territory when you're playing in usually, you know, inspired by punk and what comes with that is a level of humility. Right. And so I feel like it's quite often you speak to people who are, you know, aren't full time in their band and the admission to admit yeah, I'm in a band and that's what my main focus is. Could you admit to yourself at that point or, or admit to friends that Ezra Furman and the Harpoons at that time, that was what you really wanted to to pursue? Well, I couldn't really hide that I had nothing else of any significance going on, you know? Like, we were just working on that and there was it was like the kind of thing where there was just enough going on where it seemed, it kept seeming like somebody was going to sort of swoop down and, and make us into a successful band. Because, like, music blogs, you could just, like, get a good review on Pitchfork somehow, or, like, it. you just felt like some blogger was going to, like, come to your show and be like, this is the best band in the world, and then everyone in, like, hipster America would agree with them. So we played shows to to nobody all the time. Looking back, I feel like I, I thought that that was more how it worked than it is. Like how it, 
at least how it worked for me, for us, was like, you just work so hard for forever and you make small, slow, little progress. Um, what, and it kept us hanging on that we, I'm trying to remember when things happened. Just, we did have this shocking thing. The first time we ever went on tour, we played in Chicago and my friend and sort of manager who had just started to sort of call himself a, what we weren't really calling him my manager. He was just helping us out with a couple of things. He got someone he knew at a record label to come to our show. And we got signed to the Chicago indie label and we were so shocked and we were like, this changes everything. And truly it, it changed very little, but what it did change is we got to make, a record and like we were sort of plugged into a process that we knew nothing about how to approach. I mean, we had already made our like demo record in our recorded in our dorm rooms somehow very shoddily, but um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, it's so strange to think about. Like I was so like rabid to write and perform these songs that like, I think it, my, it didn't matter what my life was like really <laughs> at at least for a period of a few years I was like this is the only thing that matters to me at all and like I I when I thought about sort of pursuing some other path I'd usually like you know become near suicidal <laughs> like I was just like I can't I cannot do something else right now and I didn't think it was gonna work really I didn't think it was gonna become my my livelihood. There's that breadcrumb trail, finding, you know, a friend who's helping you out and, 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 and an indie label in a town where, you know, you're not living at the time. Those, that's like votes of confidence. Pretty quickly, I think we stopped expecting anything to go well. <laughs> I just accepted for a long time that like, yeah, you just like about half the shows you play in this life of playing 150 shows a year, about half of them there's like fewer than 10 people there. And, and uh, that's just what we're doing right now. And that's often the case in the States, is it? Oh, yeah. Isn't that, is not, you don't think that's the case in the UK? See, everything seems totally different in the UK. We do everything on a shoestring and expect nothing. And then like we got to the UK and people were like, they were trying to tell us like, you don't have to, six of you get one travel lodge hotel room. Maybe you should get two or three rooms. And we were like, no, no, what? That's a uh, suicide. I don't know. We we had a perverse. We took a really perverse pride, including in my in my current band, and in, into like 2015, we were still just like everything we do, we do for absurdly cheap, and like suffer through. And at some point, we started to realize like, oh, this is like making me hate my life and maybe that's worse maybe it's not worth maybe it is worth the i don't know it's a hard thing though it's a hard thing our second album somehow this song became like a hit on austrian radio and like which tune it's called take off your sunglasses it was whatever this means. We just heard in the summer of 2009, this song is number one on 
Austrian national radio, FM Führer. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. And so we were like, okay, we're going to Austria, baby. And like the shows were much better um, than any we had ever, like much, they were like packed shows. And we we're like, what? Um, and, you know, it was only true in Austria and maybe a little bit of Germany. And then we went to Austria like four times, you know, <laughs> and um, it just kept us hanging on somehow. It just kept it just hanging on. And we were like, there is something here. They liked it. Um, I do. I feel that for bands when it's good, it's good. You say, you know, you're going up, you're going up, you're going up. And then at some point, maybe the tour winds down and you don't do anything for three months. You're going to feel like that's uh <laughs> you know what I mean? That that's a downwards turn, even if it's totally not to your fan base. Is, is that, have you experienced that? Right. It's like, it's the weird thing of like, everyone was just like clamoring to touch my hand in this one room across the ocean. But now I'm just like home in squalor <laughs> and like, it's profoundly bizarre that there's like, I don't know. There's, there's people in the world who are like oh my god i want to meet her and then like people in my life who are just like that fucking idiot like (laughs) he's always saying dumb shit at parties it's weird that the music industry is sort of predicated on encouraging a a sort of hysteria Mm. a sort of fantasy about that artists are like special people do you have that fantasy when you see someone that you know whose record you love i would say there's a few people left who I still kind of feel like oh my god but like but mostly not I mean like I do remember there was this festival where we were in this trailer and the next trailer over just right next right right next to us was the pixies and they were in there just sitting around I'm like I know I know (laughs) I know they're there and somebody was like you could go just talk to them say hi I don't know make a connection and I was like Literally, I don't, I don't want to. Like, why would I? Like, I, I, like, I would just feel like a pest. And not that I, I wasn't scared to talk to them. I was just like, I'm not going to. It's a funny little relationship that fan artist thing. Like, I'm happy to hear somebody is like, I, I love your music. I love this record. That's cool. You can tell me. But like, I'm always. I think every performer who's been sort of approached a little too with a little too much um entitlement like i'm just like i'm just wary of somebody being like you have to pay attention to me now and listen to everything i have to say and my favorite thing is to just like sit down at the bar where we're gonna play in a few hours and then there's a fan there and they're like chill and they're like hey it's nice to meet you good luck tonight and they're just normal they treat me like a normal person my friend had a story of like he met um I think he met David Byrne. He he had this dream experience where they were just talking in a friendly way all night for like for like a long time and they were like getting to know each other and then finally he was like should I do this? Should I do it? And I was like he was like I got to ask you um could I just get an autograph, you know? And like it just killed it. The whole the whole interaction deflated and he was like, "Oh." <laughs> yes i could i could i i will i will sign this for you and then like instantly it it, like he was like that was over he hates me now (laughs) which i if you just remind someone that they're not normal and they can't be at ease 
Mm. That sucks. It sucks for me when that happens. So did you go over to to say hi to Black Francis and the Pixies? I did not. I did not. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, saying that now, I sort of regret it. I did. <laughs> I, I've met a. <laughs> there we go. I, I've met a couple of people who are real like heroes to me. I actually, I became amazingly to me. I became friends with the lead singer of what. It was one of my favorite bands. And when at the moment I formed a band, I was, it felt like a tribute to this band. The brand is Art Brute. Yeah. Eddie Argos. Yeah. I just read his book. He's a book. Oh, I'm not paying enough attention. But the only way it works is, I don't know. I just, I'm not, I'm not so into mystery. And I don't like, if I had a chance to meet like Bob Dylan, I don't know. I don't, I don't like, I guess I'd want to, like, I guess I'd feel stupid if I didn't and I had the chance, but like, I'm not in love with Bob Dylan. I'm in love with Bob Dylan's records, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, you find out that some um, artist is a a crappy person. And I I personally, I'm like, I don't care at all. What does that have to do with my experience? Nothing. I mean, to a point, at some point, it's like, I can't dance to R. Kelly anymore. But I kind of have that ethos of like, people aren't that special. People are just people. And like, I don't think we should, treat people like gods it's idolatry um I, i'm always like i like thinking that more like mike watt mike watt makes sense to me how he how he treats them all from the minute man um and you do your own i don't know it was such a hard thing for me to like let start to let people like carry something for me or like let myself like i don't know talk to some fans or something well well my band and our one crew member is are like lifting heavy amps i'm like i'm working i have to help everyone work i can't like go be having a nice social time while people are lifting heavy things and finally at some point like somebody was like you know you're working also when you're like talking to strangers and you're selling records when you're signing like it's like it's okay i was like a it went like against my uh, my instincts and in some deep way. I'm like, nobody's supposed to be working harder than me just because I'm like the lead singer. Who cares about that, you know? Have you acclimatized to that? The fact that, you know, doing interviews, doing, I mean, you're working right now, probably not getting paid for it. I'll give you a fiver. But, <laughs> Thank you. You know, is have you acclimatized to that? I know on Zoom, on Zoom, you can't even buy me a drink. Oh, this isn't <laughs> Zoom, but yeah, I now I fully recognize how much, how much work it all is and actually how like I'm kind of doing harder work than than loading out the gear from the stage to the van. There was a there was a terrible time like pretty early in my current band's life that I was like, you guys, this is about to become something that is like paying all our rent in a serious way. It's gonna we're working hard now because it's going to be paying off soon. And then I like kept saying that. I'm like the next tour though, that's when you're really going to get. And it's like, okay, obviously I said that before, but I think it's actually true for the next time. And then like, I don't know. It was like, they're going to, they're going to revolt. They're going to kill me. They're going to murder me if I keep saying this. And I stopped saying it. Um, (laughs) And then, I don't know, but then it, it just sort of, 
kind of look up and there's, I don't know, something else that did does happen in, in that time. We became this rock and roll band that like, there's some ESP now. We are so good together because we've played the crappiest venues. We've played the best venues. We've played many, many times, played every night, show after show after show for years. So that, like, that's something you can't quite fake, I guess, you know? You become that kind of band um, that has ESP. The, the, a big moment was like, I'm Jewish and I'm, I'm a religious Jew and I'm pretty non-traditional in many ways and I'm pretty traditional in many ways about it. And one of my core Jewish observances is that I observe the Sabbath, the seventh day, the day of rest on which I do not work, do not travel, do not write, do not use money, do not use electricity. Like there's all this stuff that makes it this holy island in time. And I was doing that, I haven't done that all my life and I didn't do it consistently and I was doing it more and more. And the only time I wasn't doing it at some point was when I went on tour. And I was like, this is killing me not to do this. But like, I can't be in a band and not play on Friday nights. I don't see how it's even feasible. And I was also, we were playing those shows to six people in Salt Lake City. And I was like, I think this is not what I should do anymore with my life. It's like, there's too many, I've been doing this for so long and it's not going particularly well. I made a great record called Day of the Dog and nobody seems to care. We were touring all over America. I was dragging my band through the mud. I was like, I think this ends now. And a big reason was that I have to play on Friday nights and that's the only time I ever work on Friday nights. I don't wanna do that. It matters too much to me, spiritually. And then sort of everyone in my band and my manager was like, it sounds like you might wanna still be a musician if you just didn't have to play on Friday nights. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's not possible. And they were like, I think it is possible. Like, just do it. Just say that is what I need now. And then that is what you will always do. And I don't, it's like, it's amazing that it had not occurred to me that I could say like, I need this that's inconvenient for everybody, but it's the only way I can keep doing this job. And then that's what I did. And I've never since, since mid 2014, I've never played on Shabbat on the Sabbath. And wow, it's so, not only is it, it is truly what I needed as, as a, person with a spiritual practice and a commitment to, to that ritual. But also it sort of broke my brain open just to even be like, oh, if I, if I really need something, I can be like, I need this. And I know that it seems like I could go without it, but I actually can't. And I'm the authority on what those things are. And uh, yeah, I, I think that around that time we stopped sleeping on floors and we were like, let's get hotel rooms, you guys. Let's really not ask from the stage anymore who can, whose floor we can sleep on. Essentially, I haven't really had a job since a long time ago, since I was, since 23, and I briefly lived in New York City and I was a walking courier in Manhattan and I would just bring these sort of unmarked packages around for this 
delivery service called Lightspeed Delivery, you know, I would get the jobs that were so unimportant that they didn't need to get there fast on a bike or something. They can just give it to the idiot kid who doesn't know how to get around the city. And I guess I had a couple of sorted jobs since then. I was I was putting up posters for this Chicago venue after, at some point, going around to record stores and, and putting up posters for their month of shows. The Hideout in Chicago, one of my favorite venues. Um, but that was barely a job, you know? It's very confusing financially to look back on, like, what, how was I surviving in, like, 2011? I mean, I guess, like, I was on tour more often than not, you know? Like, barely had a life at home. We just played shows a ton. I remember in 2012, I was, like, this is not, my life is not financially sustainable. And I still was like, I can't get a, I don't even know how I would get a job and keep a job. I mean, my bandmates were somehow managing it, but like, I just was like, I have so little experience and like, I've quit most of the jobs I've held um, unceremoniously. (laughs) I feel like I'm unemployable, but then something would happen. I don't know. One time the, uh, some Australian swimsuit ad used a song of mine, and I was like, wow, okay. That's $6,000. I, I, to this day, I'm like, I had no other plan if I hadn't gotten that money. And I was so torn up about it as a punk. Like, I was like, I'm going to take corporate money for use of my song in a friggin' advertisement that feels so not what I should be doing. I guess when I realized, like, well, I could have been, like, sort of working at Starbucks all this time instead of that. And, like, is that better? I don't know why is, why that would be more ethically pure than mm. getting 6000 bucks from an Australian swimsuit company. It's just, like, it's pure chaos. Just looking back at my life, especially, like, from a make-and-ends-meet perspective, it's just total chaos. And, and I have to mention, again, that, like, complexly and not directly, but, like, there is just a, I come from money, you know, my parents had money and I could always land at their house. Even when it felt complicated, I still landed there. So like, I don't know. It's just like, it's, I feel like pointing out all the time to everybody that there is a class barrier built into the music business. And like, even though like, it's that hard for me who like had a sort of a safety net and like got, alone from my parents at one point to buy a, a touring van and paid it back. But like, yeah, there's big barriers to, to participating in this, in this work. Thank you so much for being yeah. up for this, Ezra. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. So there she was, Ezra Furman on 101. Her new album, All of Us Flames, comes out on the 26th of August. You can catch her on tour in the UK this year. I'm just looking at the dates now. You can catch her on tour in the UK this November. Also a date at Edinburgh International Festival on August the 23rd. All of those dates you can find at EzraFerman.com. I'm back later this week with an episode with English teacher. Cheers for listening. Here's Cox Barrow. I've been working all day, got me mate on the side Running around like a blue-ass fly I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day Got me mate Every bleeding minute I've been on the go Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day
This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.